for listening to this podcasted message from the Garden Fellowship. The Garden Fellowship is a new and exciting church located in Burlington, North Carolina. We invite you to learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Garden Fellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org. We invite you to worship God through the teaching of His Word. One of the pillars that we've talked about in our church from the beginning is the fact that we believe very deeply in expository preaching. It's the only type of preaching I know how to do. Um, But expository preaching tends to work best. It tends to fall into a pattern of just starting at a particular place in God's Word and working through it, verse by verse, or paragraph by paragraph, or however it may go. Um, and so that's the type of preaching that, that I know how to do. That's the type of preaching that I think expounds God's Word uh, to us best and most, most faithfully. We had a saying in seminary that, that kind of went like this, that there's two kinds of preaching, expository and bad. So uh, that kind of sums it up for us. But in any case, that's, that's what we tend to do. And there's many strengths of uh, preaching through God's Word in that way. We've talked about some of those. We feel like that that is, we believe, the best way to preach the full counsel of God's Word. We believe that's the best way uh, to help us to study those passages, not just the ones that we like and those, those nice, make-you-feel-good passages, but also the hard ones that are difficult to work through. Uh, so there's a number of benefits to, to preaching through God's Word in that way. But one of the benefits that I particularly enjoy through uh, preaching God's Word this way is the fact that I don't have to choose what to preach. It is a uh, stress that I don't have to deal with, the the difficulty of coming up on a week-to-week basis with what you need to hear and trying to think, okay, what what do they need to hear? Now let me go to God's Word and, and bring that message to them. Instead, when we just work through God's Word, then... God's the one that chooses what we hear. And it's, it's extraordinarily amazing to me how faithful He is to do this. I'm, I'm sure that, that you have experienced more, on more than one occasion that the passage that we come to on Sunday morning just happens to be something in there that you needed to hear. Maybe you didn't even know you needed to hear it. But when you heard it, you're like, bingo, that's what I needed to hear this morning. So that sort of thing happens on a, on a regular basis. But in addition to that, in, in addition to just the personal sort of God knowing what you need to hear and having a way of bringing that passage up next, there's also the corporate sense of, the, of that in, in the sense that oftentimes there are occasions and holidays in which we like to have a certain type of message, Christmas or Easter, Passover, uh, uh, Palm Sunday, those, those kinds of occasions we like to have a message from God's Word that pertains to that. And more often than not, God also puts that together perfectly as well, which is what he has done today. Today is Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day to all the moms in the room. Congratulations. And what do you know? We are on a passage this morning that's about a mother. And you guys can attest to the fact that I didn't plan that out. I didn't space it in such a way so that it falls right on this day. But here we are on Mother's Day, and we're looking at a passage about a mother. We're going to look today at... uh, Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. This is the passage in which there is a mother who has lost a son, 
This is a passage about grief, about tremendous deep sorrow. It's a, pa- a passage about the compassion of Jesus Christ. But it's also a passage about Jesus' identity. Because this is what Luke is teaching us. He's teaching us about the identity of Jesus. Who is this man, Jesus? Jesus Christ is the perfect revelation of God the Father. He is the visible manifestation of the invisible God. And so while Jesus is not the complete revelation of God, he is the perfect revelation of God in such a way that whatever we see in Jesus, whatever character we see in Jesus, whatever traits we see in Jesus, that is also to the same degree the traits and the character that we see in God. And so we're careful to recognize the character of Jesus. In this passage, we see Jesus's compassion, but we also see some important truths, not only about his power over life and death, but we also see some important truths about his identity and what is a true confession of Jesus Christ. So Luke has shown us through many examples, Jesus's power over sin, over, uh, sin as Jesus forgives sin, over sickness, over leprosy, over demons, over nature. And this morning he's going to show us Jesus's power over life and death. So we turn this morning to Luke chapter 7, verse 11 through 17. We'll begin just by reading the passage, starting from verse 11. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. She was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So as we begin this story, I, last, last, I asked the question last week as we got started, who has met a famous person? And we talked about just a minute or two about these brief, really superficial encounters that we may have had with a famous person. So today I want to start by asking, who do you think the most famous, the most widely known person on the planet would be? What person alive today is, is the one whose name is most well-known throughout the world? Maybe uh, President Obama, or maybe Pope Francis, uh, or I thought of maybe some musical personalities, uh, Beyonce, or I don't know, um, maybe some actors that uh, would have a name that, that millions or even billions of people would recognize we can think of people that, that are known worldwide. And as we think of those types of people, we also recognize that there is a disparity. There is a true dichotomy that exists when we talk about people who are widely known. In one sense, their names are known by hundreds of thousands, millions, maybe even in the case of like Pope Francis, billions of people. But in another sense... They are not known by billions of people. They uh, may have their name that is recognized by lots and lots of people, but that's different from being known 
by lots of people. And as we think about people that are in the limelight in that way, and how often it is that people can recognize a name yet not know the person, that same thing is true to a far greater degree of Jesus Christ. There is not a person that has ever lived whose name is known by more people than Jesus Christ. Indeed, it's, it's rare, isn't it, to hear of people that have not heard of the name of Jesus. There are those people still in existence. It's rare, but they do still exist. Virtually everyone has heard of Jesus Christ. But at the same time, there is a great disparity because as widely known as his name is, it's almost just as rare to find those who truly know him and know who he is. And so that's one of the things that Luke is showing us in the passage. We'll get to that near the end. But let's just begin here from the beginning. Let's just begin in verse 11 when Luke tells us soon afterwards, afterwards the, after the encounter with the centurion. So this is in a chronological order. This is not connected with the previous episode of the centurion, but it follows it in, in a, a short time after that. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain. Now, does anybody know what Nain is famous for other than this story? Nothing. It's an absolute unknown. It's a t- it was a tiny little village of maybe just a few dozen people that was out of the way. It wasn't on the road to anywhere. It still exists today by the same name, but even today there's maybe 200 people that live there. And it's in the middle of, of nowhere. It's like, uh, I was thinking of, of Yanceyville. Yanceyville is like this little <laughs> town that's on the way to nowhere. The only time you go to Yanceyville is when you want to go to Yanceyville. Nobody ever says, you know, I was on the way to so-and-so and I passed through Yanceyville. It doesn't happen. Same thing with Nain. Nain was 20 miles south of Capernaum, where Jesus was previously. And it's not on the way to anything. At 20 miles in these days, of course, the way that you get there is by walking. And if you've ever walked 20 miles, then you know that 20 miles is a full day's walk. And so this was a long journey from Capernaum down to to Nain for Jesus to make. But we also hear that Jesus made this journey, not, not by himself, but he goes with this great crowd that goes with him. So he's passing with this great crowd, the disciples and also the great crowd. And we've talked about the people that were there with Jesus, the three groups, the apostles. There's also the disciples. The disciples were those who have heard Jesus and they have believed and they have made some type of confession. And they are now learners or followers of Jesus. So they're with him. We don't know how many it was of them, uh, maybe dozens or perhaps hundreds maybe even thousands. And then the great crowd, those would be the ones that are curious. They have heard of Jesus. They want to hear more. They want to see him. They want to meet him. Maybe they're in the process of believing. Maybe not. But the great crowd there is there is uh, there with them. Now we know from, from some other episodes in which we're told the numbers of people that followed Jesus around. For example, the, the feeding of the 5,000. 5,000 men, that is. The feeding of the 7,000. We know from those examples that Jesus was followed by thousands of people. So it's very likely that this was this numbered in the thousands of people that's following Jesus, that travel with Jesus for a day from Capernaum down to Nain. And it's very likely, it's interesting to think of this, it's very likely that Jesus, on the way from Capernaum to Nain, passed through Nazareth. 
he, uh, if he followed the main road, he would have passed through Nazareth on the way, on the way to Nain. Nain uh, Nazareth, of course, is Jesus' hometown. That's the place, of course, that rejected him, that said, this guy, no, he's, he's the carpenter's son. We know him. No, he's not, he's not a prophet. He's not who you think he is because he's Joseph's son. And they rejected him. Now, it's interesting to think of Jesus possibly passing through Nazareth with maybe thousands of people following him. And you just wonder what the Nazarenes thought of Jesus when they saw this happen. So in any case, Jesus travels here to Nain with this tremendously large group of people. And I asked the question, you should probably ask the question too, when you hear this, is the question would be, why? Why does Jesus go to Nain? What is there in Nain that Jesus is going? There's only a few dozen people that lives there. It's like this tiny little village uh, on the edge of nowhere. And what we see here is something that we are brought face to face with, not only in Luke's gospel, but in all of the gospels. And it's something that, that I think is best described as divine purpose. Divine purpose. Have you ever noticed that when the Gospels are speaking of Jesus and where he's going and what he's doing, have you ever noticed that it's almost like he's constrained? That it's, that it's as though he has not just a purpose and not just that he's come to teach and to live perfectly and to die and to rise again, but it's also like he's on a time schedule. And then he has to go here and he has to go there and he has to do this and he has to do it at this time. Have you ever noticed that? There's many places that we see that. One of the, one of the places we see this is John 4, 4. He had to pass through Samaria. Now to look at the map, no, he didn't really have to pass through Samaria. But in Jesus's timetable or in Jesus's divine purpose, he had to pass through Samaria. Why? Because there was a well there and there was a woman and that woman was going to be at the well at a certain time. And the Holy Spirit had prepared her heart in certain ways. And at that moment, Jesus was going to meet with her. And that meeting had been planned since eternity passed. And Jesus had to pass through Samaria. In the same way, it's like Jesus has to go to Nain. And he has to do it right now. Later on, as Jesus is traveling towards Jerusalem. And we know what's going to happen in Jerusalem. He's going to be turned over to the Gentiles. He's going to be tortured and, and crucified and rise again from the, from the grave. But it's as though he has to go there. And many times, all of the gospel writers will put it just like that. He turns his face to Jerusalem he, and he even offends people because he won't turn to the side. The same thing is true with Paul, by the way. Paul, it was as though the Holy Spirit was constraining him to go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, of course, is where he would be arrested. We see the same sort of thing in not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament, places like uh, Jeremiah 29 here. God says, I know the plans I have for you, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. We see not just in the life of Jesus, but we see here a sovereign God who is in command not only of the small incidents of life, but also the large plans of life. And we, we talk like this as believers from time to time about well, this is all in God's plan and God has a plan for my life and these sorts of things. And sometimes I think we say those things and don't really grasp the full meaning behind a God who is sovereign and in control and has planned the end from the beginning before you or I were ever known of. 
And it's a marvelous thing to, con to contemplate, is this divine purpose, this divine timetable. There are no coincidences. Here's another passage. I won't read that. Uh, there are no coincidences in the economy of God. There are no happenstances. There are no chance meetings. Jesus is going to show up here at Nain, and we're going to see that, that the story tells us that He shows up right at the moment of this funeral, and we know what happens after that. The, man, the boy is brought back to life, and nowhere in the story does it say, luckily Jesus showed up. In fact, we don't read that anywhere in our Bibles. Fortunately, Jesus was there. Or it just so happened that God showed up. Doesn't happen in the economy of God. Jesus is here by divine purpose, by divine timetable. There was a meeting that had divine purpose. We'll talk about that just a little bit more. But let's read verse 12 first. Verse 12 says, As he drew near to the gate of the town, it wasn't a walled city. Remember, it was only just a, a village, but the gate would have been the entrance. It would have been maybe maybe just a stone pillar with the name of the town or something. That was the entrance to the main street of the town. So he draws near to the gate, and behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Now we must picture this scene in our minds. Jewish funerals were intended to be a display of profound sadness that, intent, that the intent was to evoke as much sadness as possible from those who were in attendance. That was the purpose of a Jewish funeral. Still is today. Now, when we have a funeral today, then, then the same sort of thing takes place. There is a display of sadness and grief. And it is an occasion in which it's comfortable and it's safe to show sadness and that sort of thing. But particularly with funerals of believers, we, we try not to make them just all about sadness, right? But a Jewish funeral is different. A Jewish funeral, the intent was to display maximum sadness and evoke sadness from everyone there. So there would be at least two flute players, and those flute players would, would sing, would, would uh, not sing, but they would play a sad dirge, it would, it would be called. Remember Jesus, at one point, he's, he's talking about the kingdom of God. He says, the kingdom of God is like this. It's like somebody that played a funeral dirge on a flute, and no one, no one got it. No one heard. No one was sad, Right? And so the flute players would play these melodies that were intended to, to be sad, lonesome type melodies that would evoke sadness. And there would also be a cymbal player and he would clang the cymbals not in time with the music. And he would purposely create this dissonance, this, this ill effect. And it was intended to represent the ill effect of the person that has now left us. And then, and then of course, there would be the mourners. And they were paid mourners. The, the more money the family had, the more mourners that they would pay to be there. And these people were professional criers, professional wailers. I think we have some, some people that could qualify for that today. Many of them are in Congress. But they were professional <laughs> criers, right? And it was their job to cry so convincingly and so desperately that they would evoke tears from the people that were there. Right? You, you know how emotions can be contagious. And when somebody is sad and crying, then it can kind of tend to make you sad and cry as well. So there are these professional mourners there and they were wailing over the loss of this boy. It's a tremendously, tremendously sad occasion. And they're making their way out of town in this burial procession. The body would have been buried outside of town at the burial site. And then at this very moment, 
um, comes Jesus. Here's Jesus. And again, it's not, we don't read here. Luckily, Jesus showed up. But here comes Jesus. And um, he arrives here at just the precise moment. Now think of, think of how Jesus has left Capernaum probably early, early that morning. And he's traveled not just with a few people, but he's traveled with a large group of people. This was a 20-mile journey. Have you ever walked with a, a large group of people? You ever walked somewhere with a big group of people? Do you get there at the same amount of time as if you were just walking with you? Or No, you're slower. A big group of people is slower. And so Jesus is walking and He's teaching along the way. He's like a mobile school. Uh, and He's teaching along the way. And probably this was a long journey, but at the end of this long journey, Jesus shows up at just the, just the precise moment at which this funeral procession is coming out of the town. And they meet right here at the edge of the, of the gate. And you can imagine just what a stir this created. Because the town of Nain was a few dozen people, and probably the whole town was there for the funeral procession. But then here comes Jesus and thousands of people sort of converging on this tiny little town. And you can imagine the dust and the noise and, and the, all the, the, the hubbub that's created with this huge crowd of people. It's almost comical that Jesus comes here and it really just sort of overwhelms this little town. Kind of like the, the Wilkerson's. When we cruise into a place, we just overwhelm people with our sheer numbers. Sort of like the same thing here. But Jesus shows up with all these people and right at the precise moment. Theologians will talk about this sort of thing. They'll call it God's providence. And what they mean by God's providence is God interacts with his world. God brings about his will by normal, regular means. God interacts with his creation in such a way that he arranges circumstances, he arranges meetings, he arranges times, he arranges events, so that his will is brought about. And we see a wonderful example of God's providence right here. Now, standing over against God's providence would be what we could call the miraculous. The miraculous is just God, the supernatural creator being, injecting something into his creation, interrupting, so to speak, his creation with the miraculous. And the miraculous theologians will tell us that the miraculous is not something that's repeated. It's not something that happens on a regular basis. So we often call like the birth of a child a miracle, but, but technically that's not a miracle because that happens on a regular basis. The miraculous, the truly miraculous in the specific sense is something that God injects into creation that doesn't follow the natural laws of creation and is not something that's repeated. And then over against that is God's providence in which he works about his will. He brings about his will, not through miraculous in injection or miraculous interference, but through the normal workings of his creation. And so we think about those two ways in which God works. And I think that as we think about the awe of God and being awe-inspired and awe-struck by God, and we would ask the question, well, which of those is more awe-inspiring? What would we say? The miraculous, of course, right? That's what we always gravitate towards. But think about it. Which is more awe-inspiring? That a creator being would, would inject his arm into creation and, and upset natural laws to do something? 
or that he directs millions and millions of things on a daily basis. Think of all the lives of the seven billion people on the planet. And God is directing things to ultimately bring about his will. I say that there is no comparison that the wonder of God is truly found not in the miraculous, but in the normal everyday things that God is directing behind the scenes. And this is what he's doing here. So we see this situation. We appreciate the grief of the situation. There is um, this woman that is certainly there's there's people crying and wailing, but then there's also genuine, true sadness. This woman has lost a son. Now, we can relate to a mother losing a son, I think, but in a greater way. A Jewish woman, there was nothing that a Jewish woman desired like a son. Nothing in the heart of a Jewish woman compared to a son. Just think of all the instances. Hannah, uh, Elizabeth, just th- just think of the wives of Jacob. Just think of all the instances in which we're told of, of a woman's heart yearning for a son. And here we see a woman who has lost a son. Um, the son, the male son for the Jewish woman was was not only the way that the name of the family was perpetuated, which was incredibly important for a Jewish family, but it was also the only means of care for a Jewish woman in her older life. Because, of course, women tend to outlive men. There was no welfare or social security in those days. And in general, men tended to marry much, much younger than themselves in this culture. So typically a woman could be left a widow in her early 30s. And then there were decades of life left in which the woman typically could not own property, could not own a business, uh, was was left to, to prostitution or begging, unless there was a son that could care for her. But this woman has lost a son, and we also learn that not only has she lost a son, but she's already a widow. So she's lost a husband, she's lost a son. I think immediately of Naomi in the story of Ruth, and she lost not only her husband, but she lost both of her sons. But then there's more. Not only has she lost a son, she's lost her only son. Now. Repeatedly, at least three times, Luke is going to tell us something similar to this. In this instance, we learn of a widow who has lost her only son. And then when we also turn uh, to uh, the story of Jairus, remember Jairus, Jesus is going to bring his daughter back to life. We're told that she was his only daughter. And then the story of the, the demon-possessed man, the man tells us there that he's my only son. In three, three occasions, Luke is careful to tell us that the one who has died or is possessed by a demon is the only son of this parent or the only child of this parent, reminding us, of course, of the monogenesis, the only begotten son, Jesus Christ. So uh, the, the, the only son... To lose a son, but to lose an only son almost goes beyond the ability to describe the depth of grief and sadness that this would bring about. In fact, in Jewish culture, there was there was a, a saying or um, 
an example or a comparison that one would make. If you wanted to describe maximum grief, you would compare it to losing an only son. In fact, the prophets do this uh, at least four times that I know of. Uh, one is Jeremiah 6, verse 26. O daughter of my people, put on sackcloth and roll in ashes. Make mourning as for an only son. Or uh, Amos 8, verse 10. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. But we don't like to hear that. Either. And I will make it like the mourning for an only son. So in the prophets, even the prophets are trying to describe a time of maximum grief and lamentation. They compare it to losing an only son. So here's a woman who's lost a husband. Now she's lost an only son. And here comes Jesus. Verse 13, And when the Lord saw her, He had compassion on her. The Scriptures go out of their way to teach us of the compassion of Jesus. Of course, we're seeing the character of God, that God is a compassionate God. But Jesus is described time and time again as being compassionate. He would see a leper and he would have compassion on the leper. He would see people that didn't have anything to eat and he would have compassion on the crowd that was hungry. He would see Jerusalem and he would have compassion on Jerusalem. He's described over and over again as having a compassionate heart. In fact, the New Testament writers will actually reserve that word compassion and only use it to describe Jesus and God the Father. So nowhere in the New Testament are we told to be compassionate people, although we, are, we should be compassionate people, but nowhere are we told to be compassionate people. Nowhere is a human described to us as a compassionate person, only uh, God. And so Jesus is described as having compassion. He had compassion on her. And of course, that's not uh, just a New Testament idea that God is compassionate, but also we see this in the Old Testament, Lamentations 3, verse 22, for example, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. So He sees her. His heart is tremendously compassionate. And then He said to her, Do not weep. And we want to go, Huh? I mean, this is the time to weep. This is what this is all about, is weeping. In fact, there's professional weepers here. Right? Isn't that what the birds taught us? There's... there's there, uh, there's a season, turn, 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 to everything, turn, turn, turn. Is that the birds? Is the birds? Yeah. So there's a season for weeping. But Jesus comes in what seems to be the proper season for weeping. And he says, don't weep, stop weeping. And then verse 14, he came up and touched the beer. Now, what is a beer? It's, it is a platform it's not a coffin. Some of you may have a translation that says coffin. It's not a coffin. The Jews didn't use coffins. But it is a platform that was used to carry the body to the place of burial. In fact, here's a, here's a picture of a modern beer. I don't know if they had wheels in Jesus' day. Maybe they were carried or maybe they were rolled. But literally, it just carried the body. Uh, the Jews, would uh, they didn't embalm. They would just anoint the body with oil and some spices and some fragrant uh, things to, to disguise the scent that would come very quickly because there was no embalming. And they would wrap it, and then uh, they would carry it in that way. Now, um, uh, remember, uh, uh, Lazarus was bound in such a way. So Jesus comes up, and he touches the beer. Now, if we were there, and we saw this happen, 
we would audibly gasp. Because not only is this highly unusual, but, well, in our, I guess in our day it's not that unusual at a funeral to see someone leaning on a casket and weeping, that sort of thing. But in Jesus' day, remember, no Jew ever touched a corpse. You didn't touch a corpse or anything that the, the corpse had touched. You were ritually unclean. And Numbers 15 describes this incredibly complex ritual that you would have to do in order to be cleansed ritually. So here comes Jesus and he touches the beer. Now remember in the previous story of the, of the centurion, Jesus was going to his house before the centurion stopped him. The centurion was a Gentile. Jesus would have been made unclean had he gone into the centurion's house. Ritually unclean, so to speak. But in this instance, Jesus doesn't say anything. He just touches the beer. Ritually becoming unclean. He's teaching us two things here, of course. First of all, the, the concept of ritual uncleanness, Jesus teaches that to his, or God teaches that to his people in order to teach them about sin. Death is the result of sin. And so God is teaching us as he teaches his people that you don't come in con if you come in contact with death, you are unclean. So sin is contagious. If you come in contact with sin, then it is contagious. It spreads to you as well. Jesus, of course, comes and he touches that which is unclean without himself becoming unclean. So he's different from us. He can come in contact with the unclean and not become unclean himself. But the bigger thing that Jesus is teaching us here, I think, is how he, as our Savior, enters into the ugliness and the decay of our world in order to save us. Jesus healed the centurion's servant by saying the word from a great distance. But in this instance, Jesus doesn't. In fact, he comes and he touches the beard. Now, did he have, did he have to touch it? No, he could have just spoken it or he could have just thought it. And in fact, he could have done this from Capernaum if he wanted but he enters into the ugliness and the decay and the death of this woman's world in order to bring deliverance to her. Just as he does for us, he enters into the hideousness, the ugliness of our sin. He became sin so that we become the righteousness of God. He doesn't shout salvation to us from afar. He enters into it. What a Savior He is to do such a thing. So He comes and He touches the beer. And the bearer stood still, of course. The bearer stood still and He said, Young man, I say to you, arise. Notice Jesus gives life with His words. Just like the, the previous episode, Jesus, the centurion said, Just say the word and He'll be healed. And Jesus did. Just like when Jesus created his, his words give life. So he says, I say, young man, uh, arise. Verse 15, the dead man sat up <coughs> and began to speak. I don't think I can even imagine that. Can you maybe just partially imagine being there and the wailing and the mourning and the flutes and the cymbals and this woman that is so obviously just broken. And then here comes this crowd. And then... Whoa, he comes up and he touches the beer and he speaks and the man sits up. And he speaks. You know, Jesus just uh, 
as far as funerals go, he just ruined that one. But, uh, but again, notice that the healing, just like Luke shows us, the healing is complete and instantaneous. He sits up and he speaks. He's not in some sort of daze. He doesn't have to relearn how to talk. The healing is complete and instantaneous. But the dead man hears Jesus. Jesus addresses his words to the dead man. The dead man hears it and responds. I want you to listen for just a second to John chapter 5. Listen to Jesus' words here. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So in the same way, Jesus speaks to this dead man. He hears and he now lives, just like Lazarus, just like uh, the, uh, the daughter of uh, Jairus, but just like you and I. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. Jesus spoke to us. We heard and we now live. But then listen to what Jesus goes on to say. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to also have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So in other words, this was really just a very minuscule little miracle that Jesus performed. He, he raised one man from the dead. But the day is coming when Jesus will speak and billions of dead will sit up. Billions, hundreds of billions. How many people have lived since the dawn of, of creation? And Jesus will speak and every single one will rise. What a thing to think about. So then Jesus gave him to his mother. That, of course, was the point. Jesus, the point of this was to give the son back to the mother, but also to demonstrate uh, his salvation to them. Um, now, here's what I want us to think about for just a moment. Jesus comes here at this specific time. He speaks, the man rises from the dead. But let's think for just a moment about when it was that the man died. When do you think this man died? maybe a day or two ago. We think that because that's how our culture operates, right? When someone passes, then the body is embalmed, plans are made, uh, locations are established, family is talked to, and all these sorts of things, and then maybe three days later, there's a funeral. Not so in Jewish culture. The Jews were adamant that every dead person was buried that day. Do you remember the rush to get Jesus into the grave? Of course, that was the Sabbath. That was the next day. But, but also think about Ananias and Sapphira. You remember? Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit. God struck them dead. And then by the time Sapphira came, Ananias was already in the, in the, in the ground. So it was, it was a hurried affair. Once a, once a person passed, they were put in the grave almost right away. Now, how long did it take Jesus to get here? He left at least early that morning. So what this says to us is it's very likely that Jesus began going to the funeral before the man died. And isn't that just like God? Isn't it just like God 
to bring the solution to our problems before we even realize that the problem is there. Look at the words of Isaiah 65, verse 24. It shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. Isn't that just like God? That before we even know we have a problem, He is already working the solution out. Have you ever had that in your life to where you're just struggling with this issue and you've been praying and, and, and laboring over this thing and then God answers your prayers and the thing is solved and worked out and you look at the solution and how it worked out and you're like, wow, God must have been working on that for a long time to bring all that together like that. You ever had that happen? And the answer is, yes, He was. He, he was working on the issues of our life before we knew we had an issue. Just like He was already working at our salvation before we even fell from the garden. Because His solutions to our problems are far greater, far greater than even the problem itself. So this is just like God, isn't it? Isn't it just like Him? That even before the man had died, Jesus and this huge entourage are already on their way. Now, Let's think about this for just a moment. Let's think about the incredible sadness, the incredible sadness that the widow certainly is encountering. And think about the solution that Jesus provides for that. Do you think that the reunion between the widow and her son, do you think that the joy and the happiness and the elation over that reunion, do you think that that totally overshadowed the pain of the rest of the day? Now, we don't know how the man died, if it was an accident or maybe it was an illness. He'd been sick for a while. We don't know anything about that. But certainly this day was a very traumatic day for the widow. But do you think that the rising from the grave and the reunion, do you think that that then created more joy than the sadness that she experienced before? I think quite so. Isn't it true that that when you love someone or... Uh, care about someone, and then you think you lose that person or that relationship, but then it's restored? Isn't it sort of reinvigorated? Isn't it sort of like, like an injection, a shot in the arm? You're like, wow. How do you think it was for the widow? She thought her son was dead. And we don't know anything about their relationship before, but we have no reason to believe that it was bad. But here he was dead. And now he lives I think if the widow looked back on this, she would say, wow, the solution that God brought about was so far greater than the pain that I endured for the period of time. So I'm not saying that God takes people away just so he could give them back to us. I'm not saying that anything like that. But what I am saying is that God's solutions to the suffering of our life is so far more profound than the, the suffering itself, that by comparison, his solution that he brings into our life was worth the pain that it took to get there. I think that we find that, if we're honest with ourselves, we find that to be true with every intervention in God's life. Now, why is it that we have so much trouble believing that? Because you know what? You are just like me. We are all in the same boat together. You and I both... <coughs> We have a really hard time believing 
what uh, the scriptures tell us in places like 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17 and 18. This light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So what this tells us, along with many other places in Scripture, is that whatever we suffer now, the sadness and the distress and the pain of that suffering will always pale in comparison to the joy that God will bring about in the solution to the suffering. And I say that you and I don't really believe that. And do you think that I'm exaggerating that? Here's how I know that we don't really believe that. Because if we really believe that, every circumstance in the Christian's life would be a circumstance in which joy is greater than sadness. There would be no circumstance in our life in which sadness outweighed joy if we really believed that. Now, I'm not saying we disbelieve Scripture. I'm not saying we doubt God. I'm not saying we read that and say that's not true. We believe it in a theoretical sense. But we really don't believe it in our heart, at least not all the time, because if we did, we would never have a circumstance in which sadness outweighed joy. Think about it this way. What if the widow knew the future? How different do you think her day would have been? If she knew Jesus is showing up at 5.30 this afternoon and my son's going to rise. Do you think she would have paid for some mourners? Some flute players? Do you think that she would have been distressed? Maybe his death was painful. Maybe it wasn't pleasant. I'm sure it wasn't pleasant. But there would have been some distress. But do you think that she would have been bothered? Do you think she would have been greatly anticipating 5.30? Oh, oh it's almost here. If she only knew the future. I'm going to tell you folks, you and I know the future. I'm not saying we know every detail that's going to happen, but I am saying we know the big picture. And the big picture is every ounce of suffering for the follower of Christ is turned into monumentally more eternal joy. And if we really, really believe that in our hearts we would never be weighed down by sadness or distress or worry or anxiety. Not to say we would never experience those things. Not to say that we would never feel sadness or be distressed. We would. But it would always pale in comparison to the anticipation of what God will do through that. So we fail to believe that. How can we believe that more? We believe that by preaching it to ourselves. It's as simple as that. We preach it to ourselves. Do you know the one preacher in your life that you listen to the most? Yourself. You preach to yourself all the time. And you are totally uncritical of the things you say. 
You're, you're, you're critical of what I say, and you should be. Any preacher that preaches, you should listen and judge that by the, the words of Scripture. But you know what you, what you preach to yourself? You receive it totally uncritically. You don't weigh it against Scripture. You just take it at face value. So it goes like this. Yeah, this 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 is always how it works out. Yeah, this it's not going this this is not going to work out like like I would like it to. This always happens to me. Or you could preach this message to yourself. This kind of stinks. But what is God going to do in this? Whatever it is. Whatever it is, I may not even see it in this life, but whatever it is, the eternal joy and satisfaction of that solution will make the problem seem like a pinprick. So that's the message that we must preach to ourselves. Now look at verse 16. Verse 16, fear sees them all. Isn't that the response? That Scripture always shows us that when mankind encounters the presence of God, God manifests Himself in a, in a miracle or in a healing or just in words as He preaches to them. That they're, they're gripped with fear. Fear seized them all. And then uh, they glorified God. That's another theme of Luke. Luke is going to make sure that he shows us all the times that people glorified God. But then they glorified God by saying, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole land of Judea and all the surrounding country. So they proclaim God has visited his people. God has tabernacled with his people. He has tented with his people, which was a big thing because remember, this was a period in time in which God had not visited his people for 400 years. There had been no prophet until John the baptizer. There, there had been no word from God. And so the faithful of God's people had cried out for a visitation from God, and there was none. And so they proclaim God has visited his people. He has come among us. And then they say, a great prophet has arisen among us. Now, was Jesus a great prophet? He was the greatest but is that a correct identifier of Jesus in this context? It is not. And here's why it's not. Here's what they're saying. A great prophet has arisen from among us. And who are they thinking about? They are thinking about Elisha and Elijah, both great prophets, both raised people from the dead. And so like Elijah and Elisha, a great prophet has arisen from among us. Now, how did Elijah and Elisha raise the dead? By appealing to a higher power. What was the substance of the centurion's faith that caused Jesus to praise his faith? He believes and he knows that I am the higher power. I don't have to come there and do any kind of incantations and cry out to God to heal his servant. I am the higher authority and all I need to do is say it and it's done. And now the Nanians, that's what they're called, the Nanians say, 
A great prophet like Elijah and Elisha is among us. And the hand of God has touched us through this man. Apparently this man, Jesus, has called and God has answered his prayer and touched him. And Jesus says to them, you know my name, but you don't know me. You don't know me. What did Jesus, remember that passage in Matthew 18? Who do men say that I am? What was the answer? Some say you're Elijah. Others say you're Jeremiah. Or others say that you're one of the prophets. And the answer is, of course, no. You know my name, but you don't know me. If we were to hold our place here, you don't have to do this, but if you were to hold your place and flip over to Luke chapter 19, beginning from verse 11, this is the parable of ten minas. They heard these things. He proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem. Because they supposed that the kingdom of God... I'm sorry, not, not verse 11. Verse 41. That didn't sound right. Uh, verse 41. And, and Jesus is going to warn them about the coming destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70 AD. And Jesus says He drew near to the city. He wept over it. He said, Would that you even had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So Jesus says to them, this destruction is coming because... God in the flesh has visited you and you did not know it. Now the Nanians say, God has visited us and a great prophet has risen from among us. What a tragedy, wasn't it? That Jesus traveled this whole way. I mean, he walked a day. A whole day there, a whole day back. The whole crowd went with him. And he raised this man from the dead. And yet, they didn't recognize him. But what a greater tragedy. In the how far are the lengths that God goes to make his visitation known. And there is not a name on the planet that is more known than his. And yet there is not a person that is less known in many senses than him. We hope you enjoyed this podcasted message from the Garden Fellowship. The purpose of the Garden Fellowship Church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ through loving God, loving each other, and loving our community. We hope you were blessed by this message. You can learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash garden fellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org.